Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia, how are you? Hi Carrie. Um, I'm, I'm really well. I actually am very relieved because I got a terrible bout of hiccups just before we started oh, no. this recording session, <laughs> but I got rid of them. Um, I think they were stress related. I'm on a bunch of deadlines at the moment and um, it's quite intense. And I, I also actually stress ate a mini magnum this afternoon. And let me tell you, that was an excellent decision, but I'm now wondering if it gave me hiccups. And then the other thing that happened was my solicitor emailed me addressing me as <laughs> Ho Octavia. <laughs> and I laughed so hard I almost fell off my chair because I'm just so relieved it's not just me who makes these like terrible typos that's amazing (laughs) I know he's also an incredibly serious and fastidious man so just the idea of him dear Malcolm how about you how are you doing does ice cream give you hiccups by the way I don't know, but it's I, it's the only connection I could make. It happened quite directly after the Magnum. Interesting. I am fine. I mentioned on our mini said last time that I had plans to go into London, and I did go into London, and it was glorious, and it didn't actually rain the entire time I was there, which was very lucky considering the forecast, but I also like completely overdid it. I tried to see way too many people. I got really hungover and then I spent like three (laughs) days recovering from it and also panicking that I'd given everyone COVID. I'd somehow like picked it up on the train in and given everyone COVID and took like three rapid tests like three days in a row. (laughs) Swings and roundabouts here, but, but I'm good. Still worth it. Yeah, still totally worth it. But much more importantly than updates on my social life, I'm very excited to say that our guest on the show today is the novelist Rachel Kushner, who I have been a huge fan of ever since I read her novel, The Flamethrowers. Me too. Yes, we are fans. Big fans. As you might be able to tell in the interview, although I think we kept our cool. I think we did. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel's latest book is a collection of essays, The Hard Crowd. Though it covers a lot of ground, the collection returns often to the rebels and misfits and outsiders living on the edge of society, a theme in her fiction too. So today we thought we'd talk about these kinds of hard crowds in literature, from the ultraviolent gang in Antony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange to musicians living on the edge in their memoirs. Before we get started, Octavia, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about Rachel Kushner? I sure do. Rachel Kushner is the author of The Mars Room, which was shortlisted for the 2018 Man Booker Prize. Her previous novels, Telex from Cuba and The Flamethrowers, were both New York Times bestsellers and finalists for the National Book Award. Her fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's and The Paris Review, and she lives in Los Angeles. Also, a little reminder that our Patreon is now live, so if you would like extra content and to support the work that we do, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash lit friction and listen to our extra special bonus minisode that came out last week in which we give a short history of literary friction and it involves some surprising truths, I would say. Yes, some surprising truths about our rowdy youth. <laughs> <laughs> We have also just teamed up with bookshop.org, where we've set up a page where you can not only see all the books featured and recommended on the show, but also order them directly guilt-free, knowing you're not lining the pockets of a billionaire and instead giving back to independent bookshops. Check the show notes for the link. Do it. It's, It's a really great resource. But for now, stay tuned for our interview with Rachel Kushner, a more general discussion of hard crowds in literature, and finally, our usual book recommendations. So 
as you can tell, I'm in the hard crowd. Please <laughs> climb on the back of my hog and take a ride with us for the next hour of literary friction. I literally just had an image of you riding a pig. <laughs> yeah, do people say hogs? I don't think they do if they're in the crowd. Okay. <laughs> Rachel Kushner, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thanks for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading from The Hard Crowd. Do you mind setting it up? Yeah, so I'm going to read from the title essay, also called The Hard Crowd. I guess in setting it up, I would just say that it um, it's the last essay in the book, and it's sort of meant to tie everything together about all the other essays in the book and say something about my own past and my formation as a writer. And a lot of it is about my adolescence and young adulthood in the city of San Francisco, where I'm from. And a lot of what I describe about that city uh, has vanished and no longer exists. I was a bartender in San Francisco, and my first bartending job was at a kind of rough bar, I guess, um, in a neighborhood called the Tenderloin, at the top of the Tenderloin, really on the, on the, on the margin of it, called the Blue Lamp. The owner of the Blue Lamp was named Bobby. I remember his golf cap and his white boat shoes and the broken purple capillaries on his face, the gallery of sad young women who tolerated him in exchange for money and a place to crash. Bobby's brother would drive his Harley right into the bar. Bobby lived out in the Excelsior, but the two brothers built an apartment upstairs from the Blue Lamp for especially wild nights. I never once went up there. It wasn't a place I wanted to see. Sometimes the swamper, Jer, we all called him, slept up there when he knew Bobby wasn't coming around, but mostly Jer slept in the bar's basement on an old couch next to the syrup tanks. Jer's life philosophy was will work for beer. He restocked the coolers, fetched buckets of ice, mopped up after hours, drank 40 bottles of Budweiser a day, and only resorted to harder stuff on his periodic Greyhound trips to Sparks to play slots. In addition to slots, Jer played video poker. We had a machine in the bar called Hot Point, which paid out to winners illegally in cash. Whole parts of Jer, I suspected, were missing in some kind of permanent dormancy. I wondered who he'd been before he lived this repetitive existence of buckets of ice and Budweiser. He owned nothing. He slept in his clothes, slept even in his mesh baseball hat. I know, I saw. He lived at the bar and never went out of character. He was a drinker and swamper. He said little, but it was him and me, night after night. A bartender and her bar back are a kind of platonic pair, and Jer had my back literally. After 2 a.m. closings, he would come outside and watch me start my motorcycle, an orange Moto Guzzi I parked on its center stand on the sidewalk. He insisted I call the bar when I got home. I always did. These tinderloin bars were human puzzles. There was one up the street that had a double bed in the back where a man lay all day like it was his hospice. You'd be playing pool and drinking with your friends, and there was this man in bed behind a rubber curtain. Even the names of these establishments, all part of an invisible tenderloin circuit, evoke for me this half-lit world. Cinnabar, the Driftwood, Jonelle's. I remember a man, youngish and well-dressed, who would come into the blue lamp and act crazy on my shifts. Once he came in threatening to kill himself, 
I said, go ahead, but not in here. Did I really say that? I doubt it. I can't remember what I said. I never wrote about most of the people from the blue lamp. If I transform them into fiction, I might lose my grasp on the real place, the evidence of which is otherwise evaporated. The bar is gone. All those people have died. That might be why. Or perhaps a person can write about things only when she is no longer the person who experienced them, and that transition is not yet complete. The person who writes about her experience is not the same person who had the experience. The ability to write about it is proof of change, of great distance. Not everyone is willing to admit this, but it's true. I was really glad that you read from The Hard Crowd and and about San Francisco, because I thought that was one of the things that really united this collection in a lot of ways. Um, you, you write kind of over and over and over again about San Francisco, and that's, of course, partially because you grew up there. But I get the sense that it is kind of about showing this place that doesn't really exist anymore. So I wonder if, if you could talk a little bit about that. Why do you think that you return so often to San Francisco in both your essays and your fiction? Because it the the Tenderloin was a big part of um, The Mars Room, your last novel as well. Yeah, it's true. The Tenderloin Civic Center, which is sort of the bottom of the Tenderloin, a kind of more, I guess, sort of rough around the edges part of downtown San Francisco. And also the sunset where I'm from. I'll start with the putting some of San Francisco into the Mars Room was not something that I really wanted to do when I first got the idea to write that book. I wanted to write my conception of a contemporary novel. And because I'd, I'd written two novels previously, one of which kind of took place amidst like the national liberation movements overtaking the world in the 1960s and specifically the Cuban revolution and the kind of world of this quasi-colonial American enclave there. And then the flamethrowers is the 1970s in New York and Italy. And I thought, well, it's time for me to kind of weigh in on the contemporary. And as a Californian, I decided I'm going to write a book about California. And within California, there's a kind of the criminal justice system plays a very large role that can also be invisible for middle class people who don't want to look at it. Um, I had been exposed to it in certain ways growing up in San Francisco because um, I had a close friend who went to prison for a long time and um, then later died. And his premature death was an outcome that was very much determined by his experience inside prison. So I was sort of haunted by that. And when I, when I went to write this narrative about a woman who would be going into prison serving a life sentence, um, that's sort of what I decided the book was about. I couldn't really figure out how to do it without making her a woman, formerly a girl, who had experiences that I had a good depth of understanding of. And so I sort of felt like I had to make her a girl from my neighborhood, which just gave me a lot more range to fine tune how she narrates for the reader, she speaks in the first person, some account of how she ended up in the predicament that she's in, um, which is not a predicament that I would end up in, but I did grow up with people um, who could have ended up in that predicament. And so I made her a girl from my block. 
And for her friend set, I gave her my friends. I made the milieu of my childhood and adolescence hers. And in doing that, I sort of hoped that I got the sort of bad memories of growing up in San Francisco uh, out of my system. And I thought surely that I had in writing The Mars Room. But when I went to put this essay collection together, the sort of impulse reemerged to try to process some of what had shaped me as a writer. I lived in San Francisco. I moved there when I was 10. Then I went to college just across the bay at a state school, UC Berkeley, and moved back to San Francisco even before I had graduated from college and then lived there in my 20s, living a kind of bohemian lifestyle that from a certain perspective could be construed as a waste of time because I wasn't really seriously working on fiction and trying to become a writer. I was just living and sort of living among people whose idea about art is that you don't make it into discrete objects. You just live in a certain way. And looking back over my life and collecting 20 years worth of essays, I started to realize that time before I was, you know, deliberately trying to become a writer, that's all part of um, an account of my own formation as a writer. So it belongs in this book. And one of the long essays is about um, all the different live music venues where I worked as a bartender in San Francisco. And that's kind of fun. And also it's just, it is my life. It is what it is. And the first essay that I chose to go in the collection was the first thing I ever published, which is about an illegal motorcycle road race that I competed in at the age of 23 or 24. And it also gives an account of a kind of whole subculture in San Francisco of motorcyclists and like a world of gearheads. And maybe most importantly, it gives some account of who I was or a version of who I was before I became a writer. And then the final essay, which I just read from, is really me sort of tallying and accounting for um, many different types of worlds and people and scenes that I live with as memories, even as they have vanished from the existent world. I'm so glad you mentioned that first essay because the opening paragraphs in that Girl on a Motorcycle, you talk about your parents in Kentish Town and you evoke this part of this vision of London that similarly to the vision of San Francisco that you go on to describe has also gone. And what I loved about this collection is that as we move through the observations that you're making, and obviously each of these essays is written or was first written at you know different point throughout your your kind of writing life. But this sense of of reflection and nostalgia comes through it. And I sense that like all writers, it's hard to write about things you're reflecting on and not engage with the idea of nostalgia, right? And I wondered whether you had a kind of conscious relationship with that in your writing. Like, how do you how do you conjure something from the past without romanticizing? Or do you accept as a certain element of romanticization while you seek the truth within it? Well, it's an interesting question. I don't know with what I've done if there is a whole lot of romanticizing. It doesn't quite feel romantic on my part. Like my relationship to the past is more fraught than that. And in terms of how memory works, I find for myself actually that um, 
the sort of residue of an experience that stays with me most durably is usually the more negative aspects of an experience. Like I was taken to a lot of movies as a child by my mother, pretty adult films. And um, from some of those movies, all I remember is just the most violent scene. <laughs> like I remember she took me to Robert Altman's um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And all I remembered is a woman who a man is attempting to basically rape in a tent and she's chasing after him with a knife and he's wearing this like white cotton union suit, you know, sort of frontiersman's pajamas, which are soaked in blood. And I, I remember that image. And that's all I remember from the film, um, which isn't to say that I do that with my own memories, just pluck the worst, but the worst and the best are all sort of marbled together. And I would say also sometimes when people rhapsodize about a past that no longer exists, which people do do specifically with the city of San Francisco, because the economy there in, in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley has changed the city so much. And only really the super rich can afford to buy houses now in San Francisco. And so there's a lot of lamenting of the old city, which has been overrun and erased by this boom time economy dominated by the tech industry. But I'm not so interested in that. And it may be that um, I have the privilege of not suffering the presence of those people because I don't live there and haven't lived there in a very long time and frankly wouldn't live there because the place for me only speaks of the past and it is all soaked in the residue of my adolescence. And I can't help but encounter myself on every corner of that city. Like even the shrubbery, as uh, I <laughs> say to my husband, gets me down because it just all reminds me of the heaviness of adolescence. But so when people wax nostalgia about the disappeared San Francisco, I'm less interested in that because it presumes that we live now in an objectively worse time than then. And I'm not interested in doing that to the present. I feel like it sort of disrespects the present to hold up the past and say that was a better time. It also kind of disrespects younger people to say, oh, you know, like people do this with New York City, like you don't live in the real Manhattan, you live in this sort of cleaned up Times Square as a family friendly um, global franchise of Disneyfication, whereas our New York was seedy and alive and exciting. That may be true to those people, but every era is going to make its own version of what's exciting. So when I look at the past in San Francisco, I'm not praising it as better than what came after, but more trying to look closely, hold up for view what I can't let go of from the past and continues to live inside of me, despite the bizarre fact that it's gone. And I think that this is um, a natural outcome of getting older for every person, which is that you accumulate a lot of memories of people and scenes and worlds that you've passed through and form who you are. And you continue to be kind of in conversation with those memories, even as you are in your own present tense. And um, it's something that I really wanted to think about 
in the form of the title essay. And it's really what it's about is the texture of reflecting and living at the same time and sort of where you put your memories of these places that no longer exist. Speaking of re-encountering yourself, I noticed in the acknowledgments that you expanded some of the essays for this book, essays that you'd written before. So I wonder why did you want to do that to some essays and what was it like returning to work that you'd written in some cases years earlier? Yeah, I actually, I think that I, um, I edited virtually all of the essays in okay, the book. Well, yeah. Um, and maybe I didn't really give a full account of that at the end. I mean, I, um, I've never put together an essay collection before. And for me, the more I worked on this book and the order and the sequence and the tone of each essay discreetly as an individual thing, and then also as part of a larger thing that would maybe intentionally echo some of the other essays and then diverge from them and hopefully not repeat anything in a way that would be unnecessary, the more it started to become one book for me. And I wanted it to be an experience for the reader where you start on page one and you end on, I think it's page 250 when the essays end, and feel like it's one continuous stream of book rather than, oh, I'll pick this book up today and read an essay about Jeff Koons, or I think I'll read this essay about her uh, love of classic American muscle cars and rather that it was, you know, kind of continuous passing of a torch, if you will, from essay to essay. I knew I wanted to start with the motorcycle essay because it was the first thing I'd ever published. But when I started to open up and look at that essay, I guess at first, I mean, to your question, I thought, can I really revise this if the I published it in 2000, which is 21 years ago, and um, wrote the first draft of it in 1998, which was four years after I competed in that motorcycle race. So it was all very fresh for me, or relatively so, when I wrote it. And there are so many details in that essay that I never would remember now had I not written them down when I did. But the more I looked at it, suddenly it did come alive for me again in a way that allowed me to put that essay back kind of on the operating table, if you will, and examine each part of it. And while I very much tried to remain true to the tone of it and the sequence of it and the kind of propulsion of it, it has its own narrative arc. It's almost like a short story. There's a beginning and a middle and an end. I also wanted to make it as good as I could make it. And um, I reworked the beginning and added in some sort of back history about my dad's relationship with motorcycles, which kind of starts with British bikes and him living in Kentish town and buying this Vincent Black Shadow. And then in the ending of the essay, I thought, well, why leave that end that I'd originally had if I could make the end better? And I can see more from a great distance now because the end has a more sort of like thoughtful, reflective tone to it. So if it's going to have a reflective tone, why not, you know, refashion it with newer, later reflections? And there were other cases where just stylistically, I saw a new swerve for an ending that I hadn't um, seen as possible originally. And sometimes, you know, with a few years of interspersed focus on something, you can make it better and better and better. 
ideally. And so I want to do that to all the essays and also just get them talking to one another. And, um, and that required, at least from, from my part, revision. And it was also really satisfying to do it. They really do speak to each other. And because there are moments where that happens, where it's clear as your reader, knowing the context of the essay collection, that there are moments where I'm like, oh, Rachel's put that in in the last you know, two years because or whatever, it's a, a recent historical detail that you've inserted in. There's one of your essays where you write about cruise ships, which I really loved. And I thought even now, because obviously like time moves fast and reality is constantly kind of unfolding. I was thinking, God, I want to ask you about um, the, the the symbol of the cruise ship now post COVID because it's gone through yeah, another right. like reiteration as this kind of plague ship, right? And I was thinking, oh, I would I would love that essay with an addendum, even now, you know, it was like this um, the symbol of the it's bad captains, isn't it? Where you you're yeah. writing about. The guy, um, remind me the name of the cruise ship, the the one with the captain. It's the, uh, the Costa Concordia. That's right, the Costa Concordia. Well, okay, let's let's go back because listeners won't have read the essay. Can you talk about why you wanted to write about that in the first place? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm just remembering, yeah, so that essay appeared in the London Review of Books as a kind of, they do that diary mm-hmm. feature. But I had written it originally for a literary, I guess, festival that takes place on the island of Capri. It's run by a a really great guy called Antonio Monda. And he invited me to Capri. And um, it's, you know, it's a long ways to get to Capri. I mean, sort of exotic, beautiful place. But I think the reason I was compelled to go was because Don DeLillo wanted me to go. And he'd been invited by Antonio and he called me. I know I'm mega name dropping right now, but um, <laughs> Don called me and said, you're going to be invited to Capri and you're going to say yes and go. And who can say no to that? Um, Seriously, nobody. <laughs> so um, in order to go to that festival, you need to, you're supposed to write something original. Antonio want, wants you to, you don't just go there and sort of lazily read from your book that you've already written. You have to write a kind of paper that you're going to present to this very small shishi audience on this promontory in Capri. And each year he gives the festival a theme. And the year I went, I think the festival was purity and corruption. Um, Antonio is very Catholic. And so for him, I think it's a very Catholic theme. And um, I had just seen film socialism, this movie by Jean-Luc Godard, which sort of stars the Costa Concordia cruise ship. And he makes it look really beautiful in the movie. Like he's kind of figured out how to tease out the kind of, I don't know, the, the sublime of the cruise ship and the way that the smokestacks kind of glow and gleam as he films them and the way that the prow cuts awake and just the strangeness of using this cruise ship. And that was a couple of years before it sort of rose to prominence again, but under totally different guise, which is that the captain, Francesco Scatino, crashed it. And he was doing a kind of showy, what's called a flyby of the island Giglio, I think it's called where he's from. Um, And this is like down there right near Capri. Um, And he got too close to a shelf of rocks 
and the ship crashed up on the rocks and I think 42 people drowned that night. And Francesco Scatino kind of famously was off the ship and on dry land almost immediately. So I started to think about, I guess, purity and corruption in the realm of ships and ship captains and maybe kind of going with this slightly, I guess, provocative uh, theory that we're living in a time when ship captains get off first instead of last. I personally would never want to uh, be a passenger on a cruise ship. I mean, in a certain way, I have always been hesitant of comparisons between carceral systems and actually being in a state prison to anything else. Like when people say lockdown is like prison, you know what? It is not like prison. Um, (laughs) However, that said, the cruise ship, even though people have stepped onto them voluntarily, once you're on, if there is an outbreak of something like COVID-19, you've lost control over your ability to protect yourself from it. Um, And in a prison, it's the same thing. And it's why we absolutely, I mean, I think we should close prisons altogether, but since they are open and people are inside of them, they absolutely need to be vaccinated. I don't know if I would write about cruise ships again, but as my mother always tells me, never say never. (laughs) She's a wise lady. (laughs) Yes, Um, she is. (laughs) Let's talk about prisons, actually, because there's an essay in this collection about prison abolition. As you mentioned, the Mars Room is, is set in a prison. And I wonder where this essay kind of happened in the genesis of the novel. Was your interest in the abolition of prisons, did that precede the novel? Was it something that inspired the novel? How did this nonfiction essay take shape in the context of the fiction that you were writing about this issue? I love this question. So when I was writing The Mars Room, I felt like more and more and more sensitive to cognizant of and kind of seeing the less perceptible aspects of the kind of carceral net and the way it's laid over society. And there are things that you kind of can learn to see that you will never be able to unsee and that I was really committed to seeing so that prison is not really just the concrete and razor wire enclosures that people are taken to where they are disappeared from view and kind of end their moment in the public eye, which, you know, if they have been involved in a criminal case that's very high profile and in the news, suddenly this person is plucked from obscurity through the act and the subsequent arrest and then the trial um, and placed in public view and then they are disappeared and that story is over and they're put on a bus and taken like in the case of Southern California where I live, maybe they have a trial at the criminal court complex, which is very close to, to where I live here. And then they're put on a bus and taken up the Central Valley into industrial farmland and basically never heard from again. And yet their life is not over. Then they go inside of this place and the margins of their life are no longer the margins of the world and instead the margin of the prison, which is its kind of own world inside of this one. And when I was writing The Mars Room, I was really committed to recreating both 
the feel of the very expansive um, and big, but also, you know, small and embattled world inside of a women's prison. Um, mine is called Stanville. It's fictional, but it's kind of modeled on a real prison, which is Central California Women's Facility, which is the largest women's prison in the world and cited among almond orchards in the Central Valley. I wanted to recreate the feel of what it's like there, but also cite that world inside of the state of California so that like when Romy gets on a bus to go serve two life sentences plus a six-year enhancement, which just happens to be the sentence that a friend of mine is serving, totally different circumstances, different different person, not Romy. But when Romy takes a bus up the Central Valley, she's seeing the state kind of in a way that I can see it, even if she's seeing it for the last time. The reason I mention all this in the context of that essay that I later wrote about prison abolition is that some of the same components of the world of California and the way the state is organized and the geography of it, how epically beautiful it is, how gigantic it is. We're the fifth largest economy in the world, and yet how monstrous it also is when you look at how the state is organized and who is subjected to the criminal so-called justice system. I wanted to kind of give a truthful account of the state and this world, but I didn't have a polemical reason for doing that. It's not an abolitionist novel, although at some point someone made that assertion and um, it was completely alien to me because fiction for me is not a place where you make political arguments. It is a very profound problem how we organize our society. I don't have solutions to that problem. I do have opinions and ideas, but fiction as a place for me is about ruminating. And this book, The Mars Room, was about trying to go into sites of total moral complexity for me and just think into those and say something true about people who for me, all possess a soul and cannot be cleanly divided into an axis of good and bad or innocent and guilty, good and evil. So the book was that, but at, over the course of writing that book, I built up a lot of questions for the scholar, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who had written a book about California called Golden Gulag that tries to give a really full and sophisticated account of how it is California built something like 23 prisons in 21 years, a prison building boom that state bureaucrats themselves described as the largest prison building project ever undertaken in the history of the world. And what she does is she presents an argument that is not one narrative of you know, there were bad people in Sacramento, our state capital, who cooked up this way of punishing Black people. Ruth Wilson Gilmore is herself Black, I should say, and um, uh, has a dizzying array of knowledge about the Black radical tradition. It's almost like she is an embodiment of it. But Gilmore, instead of giving one narrative account of, you know, people engineering something in a conspiratorial manner, shows us that 
there are some conspiratorial aspects and some non, some components of what came to account for this prison building boom had to do with cycles of drought and our reliance on irrigation to grow food. We grow 40% of United States' food in the Central Valley, and then there are also cycles of economic recession, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So after I finished the Mars Room, I thought, wouldn't it be fun to ask Ruthie Gilmore everything I've always wanted to ask her? And I luckily convinced the New York Times Magazine to assign a profile of her that would also, to my mind, be a kind of showcase of the ideas behind prison abolition and present that movement and concept to a mass readership that might not know anything about prison abolition, might be pretty hesitant to those ideas, but perhaps could be persuaded. So they approved the piece and I went to interview Gilmore and ended up with an 85,000 word transcript <laughs> that, then, that I then had to edit down and also figure out how to make palatable, not just to the readership of the New York Times, but to the very amazing editors of the New York Times Magazine who do not, to my mind, they don't publish work that they don't believe in themselves. They really need to be able to defend you and countenance for themselves every sentence of your essay. And that was a long process with them. It was a two-year endeavor for me wow. writing that. And there were moments where I thought, this is crazy. I could have, you know, I could be a third of the way into a novel by now, but it was totally worth it. Partly because through the collaboration with my editor there, I was humbled by the process because I had to find a way, and she was committed to my finding a way of convincing even the most resistant reader without presuming that you're talking to a readership that's already on board with you, which is what I might have done in the first draft. And it could have been a good essay, but it would have been for a smaller readership. And I think that my own ideas can sort of be humbled and sophisticated by always having to speak to people without presuming that they start out on my side. Rachel, I wanted to ask you, I loved reading you on other writers. And it's interesting to, to hear you talk in, in a kind of meta context about what this work is in terms of, you know, getting an insight into you as a writer, because that's part of what I really loved about reading those essays, and especially thinking of you as as a novelist. And one of the things that I noticed that you mentioned a couple of times that I was so interested in is the traditions of the 19th century novel and, and how it's persisted and being, you know, forgive me if, if you don't agree, but a little bit snarky about the ways in which the 19th century novel functions. So when you're talking about Cormac McCarthy, you set the way his characters talk in, in kind of opposition to the way that people psychologize and divulge in, um, you say, the type of novels popularized in the 19th century and still for some mysterious reason going strong today, which I loved. <laughs> I loved that. Do you yourself as a writer try to get beyond the kind of realist 19th century novel? And do you think we as a culture need to get beyond that kind of novel? Oh, gosh. I sort of, in a way, I feel um, deservedly called out for you pointing this out because 
in some sense, I wonder when I wrote that line that you just read about, you know, for some mysterious reason, still going strong today, if I was including myself in those who continue for some mysterious reason to promote a form whose zenith is long past. So I, I don't, when I say that, I don't think I consider myself safely on the other side, you know, yeah. um, in terms of like, you know, being in the cavalry, let's go with a Cormac McCarthy type metaphor, <laughs> who is, you know, the advance guard or something. A novel is a curious thing. I'm for many years now, I feel like I've tried to tease out why it's so different in terms of its trajectory of change than, for instance, visual art, which is always on a kind of vanguard line or trajectory where there's this Oedipal relationship to what came before. And history is a kind of baggage that you have to sort of throw off of the boat, you know, and art is always changing rather than reproducing what came before it. It can reference younger artists can reference older artists, but they're always doing it in some way that um, is kind of doing like a violence or disfigurement to what happened previously. Whereas fiction has not changed that much. And some of the innovations that were the achievements of the modernists, you know, like Proust and Faulkner, for instance, are more interesting maybe than a lot of what contemporary writers are doing now. That said, I don't read a ton of contemporary fiction. And I do notice that there is a kind of way in which contemporary writers will make reference to the poor quality of contemporary fiction, which seems a bit bitchy, but it also <laughs> suggests that they're out there reading mediocre fiction, which why would you spend your time doing that in order to know that you yourself are not guilty of contributing to the genre of mediocre fiction? You know, so I'm a little hesitant to, I don't know where I stand in that regard. The reason I don't read a lot of contemporary fiction, I think is because, um, I want to be in conversation with and steal from writers I love who have kind of weathered the storm and Holocaust of time and made it through and still seem fresh and compelling to me. And you can't really do that with your contemporaries. But back to this idea of like, do I want the novel to rid itself of some of its more sclerotic conventions, shall we say, and be something new? I think most writers actually want that and start out wanting that when they begin a novel. And then there are ways in which the novel itself pushes the writer toward compromise and each new book presents itself as an opportunity finally to figure out how not to compromise. And I reserve for myself the dream with each novel of it being the one where I figure out how to do it in a totally new way that doesn't involve compromising to convention. Amen. Yeah, that's a very good answer <laughs> to my question. Um, oh, thanks. I think that's a great place to end as well. So Rachel Kushner, thank you so much for coming on today and speaking to us. 
Thanks for having me on the show, Carrie and Octavia. This episode is sponsored by Picador. We've spoken before about books structured around groups of friends and the tensions that may arise within a group being a rich territory for drama to unfold. This is particularly the case for adult friendships with love triangles and fallings out, whereas those that occur in children's stories are more idyllic. But what about the in-between stage of adolescence? Heaven by Miyako Kawakami, the international best-selling author of Breasts and Eggs, is the novel to add to your TBR pile that explores the complex bonds of teenage friendships. Heaven tells the story of a 14-year-old boy who is subjected to relentless bullying for having a lazy eye. When he finds a note that reads, we should be friends, from a female classmate who suffers similar treatment from her tormentors, the pair form an unlikely alliance. The two friends find consolation in each other at a time when they need it most. But what is the nature of a friendship when your shared bond is terror? Vogue has hailed Heaven as an expertly told, deeply unsettling tale of adolescent violence, and the Irish Times have described it as an adroit novel of real feeling and insight from a writer who wants her readers to think for themselves. Miyako Kawakami has received praise from Haruki Murakami, Anne Yu, and Nisha Dolan. An unflinching yet tender, sharply observed and intimate story of two teenagers struggling to grasp the perversity and contradictions of the world they live in. Heaven is the second novel to appear in English following the breakout success of Breasts and Eggs. It's translated by Sam Bett and is available from your local independent bookshop in June. Let's talk about hard crowds in literature. There's a real fascination with things on the edge, isn't there? With people who take risks, who rebel, who truly dare to live on the outside. And I feel like books can be a safe and accessible way into these kinds of crowds and subculture. I'm thinking of novels by, of course, Rachel Kushner, who we just interviewed, or, you know, Irvin Welsh or Brett Easton Ellis, which offer a kind of window into groups and scenes that many readers couldn't or wouldn't want to engage with themselves. But I guess the question is, when does fascination or connection become prurience? And what are we really getting out of reading about hard crowds? So first, Octavia, what is the attraction of books about people who are living on the edge or on the outside? What, why do we like reading about hard crowds? I think the obvious answer is that, you know, books are- Books can grant us access to another world without needing to um, put ourselves in any kind of danger. So we can dip into these experiences and come out totally unscathed. So we can vicariously experience a hard way of life without taking any of the risks involved. And I think that's why there is a question about the risk of it being prurient and the risk of it being exploitative, right? Um, Like, what is it that the largely like bourgeois reading public (laughs) want to get out of reading about lives of um, that involve a lot of destruction or destitution, you know? Yeah, definitely. I think it also has to do with, it can be a celebration of otherness and subversive, like the kind of subversiveness that comes along with not following the rules. I think that's something that art can do really well is show 
other ways of being and living. And I think you're right that that's not always what emerges. But I was thinking the book I want to recommend later, Jesus's Son by Dennis Johnson. I think it's a book about addiction, but I think it is kind of a, it's a pay on to people who live on the fringes, really. It's It's a kind of celebration as much as it is an exposure, if that makes sense. Totally. And I think the distinction can actually be, does the kind of bourgeois gaze affect how something is written? So the books that I find make me feel very uncomfortable are ones that feel as if they're packaging this more liminal experience of life so that uh, someone in their comfortable house can digest it and feel edgy by default, you know? And that to me feels a bit parasitic sometimes. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because we only have so much control around how things are read. And I think this also brings up questions about romanticization or glamorization of particular ways of living and lifestyles. Um, You could interpret books about hard drinking or criminality as both critiques and as celebrations. And I think some of the best artwork, especially about, I'm thinking of The Sopranos here, which I know is not a book, but it is kind of like, you know, the great American novel of our age, is a show that really wrestles with that because it's hard not to fall in love with, with Tony and all of those mobsters. But at the same time, if you love them, are you condoning and celebrating the kind of horribly violent acts they're committing? And I think David Chase, the showrunner, was constantly testing the audience in that way. It's kind of throwing back our complicity in Tony's violence in our faces. And I mean, I don't think we need to always hold art up to those standards. I, I don't think that because art can be read as a kind of glamorization, it should not exist. But I think it's a question we have to ask ourselves about why we're reading about these things and what it means to read about these things and, you know, how art presents ideas. Absolutely. And it's why I've never really got on with Hunter S. Thompson, because I find his work so, he's drunk his own Kool-Aid, you know, (laughs) and I can't, I, perhaps it's because I'm in recovery myself, but I just find I find it incredibly grating. I can't give myself to it. Whereas a character like Boris in Donna Tartt's novel, The Goldfinch, I, f- I found him an incredibly compelling study in, in a person who is very uninhibited and edgy and kind of dangerous, but also like complex and wonderful. And his internal wrestling is something that makes him very relatable and the role he plays in that novel is to draw the narrator who perhaps left to his own devices would be slightly more conservative into this other way of living and to look at the world in a different way and all of that felt like a very um, measured and considered way of looking at things like addiction or risk-taking behavior that didn't feel exploitative of any of the characters. I know we bring her up every show, but I was thinking of Mary Gateskill in that category too, as yeah. someone who who kind of did live the life in in some ways, but writes about it with so much critical perspective. Totally. And she just isn't into aggrandizement in any way or romanticization. And I think that's the stuff that I always have the, the problem with. I, I always find it troubling. Like Kathy Acker, whose work I love, I find really compelling and energetic, but I do also find her romanticization of some of these things quite difficult. 
I would say Patty Smith. It's interesting because there is a certain kind of romanticization of making art in Patty Smith's work, but I don't think it's about the lifestyle. And I think no. that's why her memoirs and her writing seem so true. Yeah, absolutely. It's complicated because it's I think it's difficult to have this conversation without it sounding judgmental, which I don't mean it to at all, but I do think that there's a kind of glamorization of dysfunction that is not very helpful. Whereas what Patty Smith's doing is, yeah, romanticizing the art making process, but in a way that I think is very productive because she does it with a certain guilelessness. But she does not romanticize she doesn't romanticize degradation at all. I think the same can be said of Viv Albertine, whose memoirs I, I really enjoy, because she doesn't romanticize rock and roll at all. She was there. She lived it. She describes it. Some of it was obviously incredibly fun and fertile, and some of it was pretty d difficult to live through and, and complicated. But she tells the story with a dispassionate perspective that I think then lets the kind of rock and roll side of it really live without leaving you as the reader holding any of it in your hands which I think is kind of key because that's such a big part of books about the hard crowd isn't it is rock and roll memoirs you know Keith Richards of course or Kim Gordon or Viv Albertine as you said there have been so many rockers who have written about a life lived degradation plays a part in it so often doesn't it the kind of rise to fame and the fall and the partying and we have a real fascination with seeing inside that kind of existence don't we yeah completely I wonder if also it's partly because there is that universal part of human beings which the knowledge that life and death is so finite and so fragile actually we all we all have that knowledge, even if we live very kind of conservative lives, maybe, or we don't take risks or whatever. But I do think that the, it's, there's something that is part of the appeal of these kinds of stories is that maybe it taps on that door <laughs> inside all of us, that it would be so easy to step onto the other side. You know, it wouldn't take much. We also want to know that it's possible to come out of it, right? Because yeah. so many of these memoirs are written from the other side. There's something very hopeful about it, even if it is kind of a vicarious living on the edge or even a prurient peering into somebody else's damage. It's so often about recovery. Yeah, very true. Or it's just Keith Richards who's like, none of it really touched me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is your recommended book about hard crowds? Mine is a book I really love. It's Nicotine by Nell Zink, which is full of just mad and fascinating characters who are written on the edge of caricature as Zink so often does. But I always find her imagined people so original that they never end up feeling like tropes or cliches, even though they're pretty out there. But they're more vehicles for clever observations about really the way that we live and also the lies we tell ourselves about the way that we live, which is very interesting. So this novel spans several different moments in time, but it takes in life in various different communes. So really hitting the theme hard crowd on the head there. One is a hippie commune in the Hudson River in the early 2000s. And then 10 years later, we come to a squat named Nicotine, which is occupied by squatters in defense of smokers' rights. And basically from there, this whole world of squats organized around different radical specialisms, like hardline feminists or a group whose focus is indigenous rights, spins out. And this satirical novel but also it has important things to say about the nature of idealism and collective action and also really alternative lifestyles. So it's pretty on the, on the money and it's great. It's a really fun read. 
So on the money. What about you? What's I'm impressed. Your... Oh, thanks, babe. My recommendation is Jesus's Son by Dennis Johnson, which I mentioned already, which feels especially appropriate, actually, because there's a really wonderful essay in The Hard Crowd about Dennis Johnson by Rachel Kushner, which includes her going to one of his readings and being like the first person there <laughs> and being in the front row. And you get the sense that she's really a fan. So I love when writers actually admit that, you know? Yeah. Anyway, I can see why she's a fan and I can see the ways in which their work connects as well. But Jesus's Son, I mean, I read this years and years ago, but it still beats in my heart a little bit of it. It really blew me away when I read it. It's a collection, it's a collection about people on the edge, and we do follow this one character who is an addict. It's based on Johnson's experience, and I think you feel that when you read the collection. I mean, there's nothing packaged for a bourgeois audience about this. It's it's all about speaking truth through literature. And it's also just full of just the most beautiful sentences and images. I still think about this description of a hailstorm as having green translucent light. And then there's a sentence where Wayne and his wife, he's remembering walking out into a hailstorm. And he says, they walked out into a town flooded ankle deep with white buoyant stones. Birth should have been like that. Isn't that amazing? I just got goosebumps. Yeah. It's magic. You gave me a copy of that book and it is magic. All right. We are back here with Rachel Kushner to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? I'd love to. My recommendation this month is a book called No One Is Talking About This by Patricia Lockwood, which I think by this point quite a few people are actually talking about, but still. I started reading it a while ago and I put it down because I was finding its style not meaty enough for me when I was going through something very big that was very emotional and I wanted to be in a much steadier vehicle. And now I picked it up again because I thought maybe I'm ready to go back to it. And I'm finding it really electrically original in its prose style and in its energy. And I, I am ready for it again, you know, which I love that that way of relating to a book when you, I think books can find you at the right time and the wrong time. And I think it's wonderful when something maybe does cross your path in the wrong time and then you go back to it and it clicks and you think, okay, great. This is one of those books about the internet. You will have seen lots of people talking about books about the internet. I have talked about books about the internet. But this is really about a very specific corner of the internet namely social media and it it's really the voice is so strong and so unlike anything else I've read and it doesn't reflect my own experience of the internet I'm not an extremely online person I'm a moderately online person and a bit of a luddite probably only go to three websites every day but it still feels familiar to me as it circles around things that I'm aware that are happening online all the time. Like I'm aware that there are these online celebrities like the protagonist who she's a woman whose fame has skyrocketed off the back of her social media presence and age that we live in now where people can be self-appointed social commentators in ways that don't require an editor or, you know, the, the kind of old machinery of the publishing industry, let's say. And Lockwood replicates this insane mashup of influences and images and senses that make up any five second scroll through Twitter or Instagram so, so well in her prose. And I find something really exciting about seeing 
what is often a visual medium replicated in prose in that way. But it's anyway, I'm not going to go into the plot too much, but it's more than, I'm putting this heavily in air quotes, but it's more than just a novel about life online. It's also about family and grief and how you hold on to a sense of yourself in a world where you're subjective to an avalanche of other subjectivities all the time, but also where you are constantly broadcasting your own subjectivity, if that makes sense. I think it's a very exciting book. I've uh, I've read about half of it, and she somehow makes like this jumble of ideas narrative, um, yeah. which I have found, I, I'm not sure how she's achieved that alchemy. I'm really, I'm very impressed by it. Yeah, basically. it's got a very singular energy to it. Rachel, what's your recommendation? I just want to say quickly, I haven't read that Patricia Lockwood book, and I wasn't sure I was going to, but then I read a long essay about it by Claire Wills that was so convincing. So now I do want to read it. Um, So my recommendation is the Copenhagen trilogy by Tova Ditlevsen, a Danish writer who died, I believe, in the 1970s and um, is experiencing something of a kind of huge resurgence right now. And I'm not sure why the timing is now, except that Penguin in the UK and FSG in the United States have just republished this trilogy. I was sent the trilogy by the UK publisher Penguin sometime in 2019. And there are three small books that are bound in a kind of ice cream pink set of soft covers. And they were so pretty that I put them on my shelf, but you know, got busy and didn't really understand what they were and just left them there. And then a friend of mine recommended them to me, the writer Ben Lerner. And I sat down, this was a couple of months ago, and I read each one in a night. Now, the three sub books of the trilogy are titled Childhood, Youth and Dependency. I read Childhood the first night. It's short. I mean, it's, you know, a couple hours of reading, one sitting, and it's over. Childhood is about Tova Ditlovson's own childhood. So it's an account of her own formation. She wants to write poetry, wants to become a poet, is from a kind of rough and tumble family in a rough working class part of Copenhagen. Um, And she's incredibly perceptive about herself and her surroundings and her sentences do so much work. There's a lot of heavy lifting in each sentence and yet they aren't dense at all. There's a lot of breath in between um, the sentences in this book and there are lines like, every childhood has a smell, which is so true. And she's saying it about her own childhood. And that line can mean many things. But to me, at the moment I read it, I thought this is about the way that you kind of trundle along. Your whole life is a destiny that can only be lived by you and no one else. And you understand this as a child, that there's something about a fate of origin that's being fixed for you. And only you can kind of bear the consequences, good and bad, for what that is. So I loved the way that that the first book about her childhood was written, very perceptive. The second book, 
youth is about her life as a young adult. She gets her first job at, I think, 15. She's forced to work and leave school. And um, she makes this observation about work in her first job. Um, I'm I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the book in front of me, but it's something to the effect of, they needed my body for this labor. They didn't care about the rest of me. And it's something I remember feeling when you get these stupid jobs as a teenager that you, and, and later all jobs, in fact, require so much minimizing of self in order to do the job. They don't want yourself. They only want this one component of you. And the way that she's seeing that and sharing these observations is totally electric. She's an amazing writer. The third installment of the trilogy is called dependency. And apparently the word for dependency in Danish, as I understand it, is also the word for marriage. Wow. Um, It just so happens that in the third installment of this book, she does get married a few times. And um, her final partner in the book introduces her to Demerol. And she becomes an opioid addict. And um, it's totally devastating um, to read this account. And it's written with a ruthless economy so that she's making a kind of calculus by the end of the book. She's letting you know that she was introduced to opioids and that it changed her irrevocably in terms of what her drive consists of. And she remains on the other side of it, looking back and telling you that she cannot return to a place of consciousness that existed prior to her engagement with morphine. And it really hurts to read that last installment, so much so that uh, I couldn't sleep the night after I read it. I felt disturbed for days. And afterward, I thought, would it be better to just read the first two and skip the third? And then I thought, you know, sometimes when you engage with really great literature, it is going to bite back like that. And I don't know if I would want, in retrospect, to only have the first two and not know the third. And I I actually don't think that they were originally constructed as a trilogy. I'm not quite sure about that. But now that they are and people have read them as this, there is an integrity to the whole. And the third is in a way the most formally brilliant. And there are people who've said it's, it's the best one. And I think they say that because it's the most riveting and it leaves the most on you even as it takes the most away from you. That said, I enjoyed the first two more, but um, but I accept that the books are what they are and I do recommend them widely and broadly. She's a phenomenal, phenomenal writer. I actually gave that trilogy to my mum and haven't read it myself, but my mum read Youth and loved it and then hasn't read the other two yet. So um, I'll hurry her up so I can borrow them. I also gave it to my mom after I'd read them, but I I gave them to her very much with the proviso, excuse me, of um, don't read the third one before bed because I know it would bother her. I got sent those editions by Penguin in 2019 as well. And I 
I have to admit, I read the first couple of pages and I just didn't get it and I put it down and I haven't picked it back up, but this recommendation might be what I need. Yeah, I think, I think, I honestly think you won't regret reading them. My recommendation is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy by John Le Carre, or is it Le Carre? I never know. Le Carre, I've always said. Yeah, because Americans always say Le Carre, but they're probably wrong. Anyway, um, (laughs) I'm currently reading this before bed and I'm really enjoying it. I'd never read anything by Le Carre and oh my God, Le Carre, (laughs) what's happened? (laughs) Um, But he died last year. So many people have recommended him to me and he seems to be sort of back in fashion in some ways, maybe just because he died and, and people started reading his books again. But anyway, I decided I would finally try him. And in some ways, I would say it's the novel that I expected from the ways that people have described him to me. So it's this kind of strangely bureaucratic portrait of spycraft. A lot of it is about aftermath rather than action. And it's very, it feels very cold and damp and dowdy in the best possible way. Sort of England, nothing is insulated in the right way. It's always raining. And and Smiley, of course, is this wonderful character, sort of dowdy spy whose wife is always cheating on him. But I also really love how labyrinthine and complicated this book is, which I didn't ex- expect. And not so much that you can't read it, but the plot jumps around a lot and you're given a lot of information that it's kind of impossible to understand all of it. And you have to just let it wash over you. And it's this journey of discovery that you're almost making alongside the character. Um, and of course, it's about figuring out who the mole is within MI6. But I I think it's also just about humans and their entanglement with the state and the all too fully human nature of espionage, which is, of course, why I think we return to spy stories over and over and over again. And I'm just really enjoying it. And also, it's so great on um, the geography of London. You feel like you're in London when you're reading this book, when you're kind of going with Smiley to the various places that he is. And it makes me miss it so much because I haven't been there in so long. So if for whatever reason you, like me, have not read Le Carre before, I would recommend that you pick up this book. He is a he was a phenomenal writer, a classic. I've never read Le Carre. Weirdly, it's like kind of oversight, but I think I'm I think I'm going to. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Rachel Kushner and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us by email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. Literary Friction.